Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Federal authorities executed Lisa Montgomery earlier this week, on January 12th. Despite sustained objections regarding her history of severe mental illness based on a lifetime of surviving horrific physical and sexual abuse, she was the first woman executed on federal death row since 1953. Authorities at the federal prison in Terre Haute subsequently executed Corey Johnson on January 14th, and Dustin Higgs is slated to be killed tonight, January 15th, despite a sequence of appeals. All three executions would be part of the Trump administration's final push to abruptly restart federal death row. Washtenaw County, Michigan's newly elected prosecutor announced Monday that his office will no longer seek cash bail in criminal cases, saying it discriminates against poor people and perpetuates racial inequities in the justice system. Prosecutor Eli Savitt, in his first act as the county's top prosecutor, joins prosecutors across the country who have done away with the long-standing process of asking defendants to pay money to get out of jail and ensure they show up for future court hearings. His directive cites an analysis by the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, that found that black people in Washtenaw County were 8.55 times more likely than white people to be jailed because they can't afford bail. Prosecutors can still recommend that a judge deny a defendant's release from jail in various instances. The Michigan Constitution allows for people to be held without bond when they are charged with murder, first-degree criminal sexual misconduct, and armed robbery. Judges can deny bond to defendants convicted of two or more violent felonies in the past 15 years, or if they are charged with a violent felony while out on bail or on probation or parole for another violent felony. A large majority of the Virginia State Crime Commission recently voted to back legislation eliminating all mandatory minimum sentences in the state's criminal code. The legislation would do away with mandatory jail and prison terms related to 224 crimes. The commission also voted to back legislation that would permit some prisoners serving felony mandatory minimums to ask a judge to reconsider their sentences. Mandatory minimums overrule a judge's sentencing decisions, robbing them of discretion in sentencing. Delegate Mike Mullen, an attorney, said, quote, I think mandatory minimums skew our system. We appoint judges to represent their communities, and they are on the ground." End quote. The commission's research found that black people were more likely than white ones to be serving mandatory minimum sentences. Opponents of mandatory minimums assert that they don't discourage crime and have not actually eliminated sentencing disparities. Opponents also argue that mandatory minimums place a burden on a defendant's right to trial because attorneys use the threat of a mandatory minimum sentence to pressure defendants to take a plea deal rather than go to trial.
A state district judge in Albuquerque ruled this week that Bernalillo County's Metropolitan Detention Center must allow qualifying patients access to medical marijuana in a victory for advocates that could have far-reaching implications for jails and prisons. It was unclear whether correctional facilities statewide would voluntarily comply with the ruling, but State Senator Jacob Candelaria, an attorney who represented a defendant in the DWI case that led to the decision, said he intends to send notice to jails and prisons asking them to comply. Taylor Center, a private halfway house in the Tenderloin, has been on lockdown since January 8, 2021, because three or more people and staff have tested positive for COVID. Overnight, Taylor Center effectively became a private prison in the middle of San Francisco. All of the residents at Taylor have been confined to their rooms except for mealtimes and working hours if they have a job with the Department of Public Works. Common areas, such as the cafeteria and day rooms, are closed. None of the residents have been told who and how many people have tested positive in the outbreak. One resident has even been sanctioned for his alleged use of a cell phone to speak publicly about the outbreak. Residents are on parole from state or federal prison, and many work outside the center on a regular basis. Due to strict lockdown measures, many residents are at risk of losing their jobs. The center has refused to allow residents to provide themselves with temporary alternative housing while the facility quarantines, though all residents have a GPS monitor. The center has a financial interest in keeping people at the facility. Both the feds and the state both pay the GEO Group to house people at the center. How much GEO Group makes and the terms of these contracts is unknown. The state contract will run out eventually, given that the California legislature has banned future contracts with private prisons. In 2016, another GEO Group center in Soma was paid a base of $98,000 a month as well as between $48 and $60 a day for every parolee or inmate, or $420 a week. The GEO Group is a billion-dollar corporation that operates 129 private prisons in the U.S. and the U.K. Its revenue for 2019 rose to $2.4 billion, up $600 million since 2015, when Obama had restricted the Bureau of Prisons from further private prison contracts. Monica Hook, vice president for the communications at GeoCare, reported at least three people have tested positive at Taylor, but that all of them have been quarantined off-site. California defined outbreak as three or more cases in 14 days. Hook said that they are trying to find out how the information about the outbreak and lockdown got on Twitter. Though, she also said that residents are allowed to have cell phones and communicate with the outside. Individuals have access to the community, she said. Under lockdown, however, they don't even have access to the day room. Two staff members were taken hostage at St. Louis Justice Center on January 2nd in a rebellion prompted by inhumane protocols in response to COVID-19. Inmates cite filthy and crowded conditions, as well as the transfer of COVID-19 positive inmates into the facility, causing the spread of the virus. One detainee explained, quote, seems like they wanted people to get sick. There was only about eight sick people in my pod, and they just started bringing in more people without testing them first. Next thing you know, everybody was sick. We weren't rioting, we were protesting because they weren't protecting us from COVID. The food is really bad, we didn't have cleaning supplies, and the guards treat us like animals, end quote. Inmates also report guards using mace on inmates sick with the coronavirus. 
This news comes on the fifth and final day of a prison uprising led by the indigenous people of New Zealand and Waikato, North Island. Prisoners were protesting poor conditions, including brown water and lack of access to clean clothes, culminating in the burning of a prison building on January 1st. 16 prisoners refused to surrender. Eddie Lee Howard is the 28th person convicted of murder on the basis of the pseudoscience of bite mark evidence to be exonerated in the United States. He was convicted despite the absence of physical evidence or of witnesses to the murder. Of the 375 people exonerated on the basis of post-conviction DNA tests, 225, including Howard, are black. Black defendants are more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder when the victim or victims are white, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. Further, the Death Penalty Information Center reports that black defendants convicted of murdering white people are more than four times more likely to be executed than those convicted of murdering black people. Howard spent 26 years on death row in the infamous Parchman Farm in Mississippi, a former slave plantation turned prison for a crime that he didn't commit the murder of an elderly white woman in Columbus, Mississippi. The county police had no credible suspects in the crime and arrested Howard without any documented, reasonable suspicion, despite the fact that he had several alibi witnesses. Howard's case is a blatant example of how racism and the use of spurious forensic methods like bite mark comparisons can lead to wrongful convictions of innocent people, according to the Innocence Project. After a right-wing white supremacist mob ransacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, prison laborers are going to replace the furniture the mob destroyed. The federal government has a subsidiary, Federal Prison Industries Incorporated, known as Unicor, which will most probably replace the broken furniture with new furniture manufactured by incarcerated people making between 23 cents and $1.15 an hour. The federal government owns Unicor, and the Department of Justice markets the company as a, quote, cost-effective labor pool, unquote, to both federal agencies and private companies. As of 2017, Unicor hired 17,000 incarcerated people to make various items, from lamps to air filters to office supplies, in 83 factories around the country. Some of these factories were open 24 hours a day at one point. According to an April report from the Marshall Project, several Unicor factories remained open for business through the spring despite public health mandates to close them during the COVID-19 pandemic. Nearly two years ago, a bill in Congress sought to end Unicor's relationship with the federal government, but it was voted out of committee along party lines. Republicans opposed it. Democrat Lee Carter, sponsor of the bill, insisted that when, quote, inmates have a choice to sit in confinement or work for as little as 80 cents an hour, end quote, their labor isn't voluntary. CrimeThink and a coalition of anti-border organizers have released a call for nationwide protests outside the immigrant detention facilities and ICE offices for Inauguration Day. They say, quote, the Biden administration intends to continue running Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, detention centers, which are essentially concentration camps for the undocumented. On January 20th, we call on everyone to gather outside these places, either to welcome children and families back into freedom, or else to take the steps to ensure that their detention concludes with the end of the Trump presidency." Unquote. The rest of the call can be found at itsgoingdown.org. 
This week on KiteLine, we share a conversation that was sent to us from an outside supporter of the ongoing Saskatoon Correctional Facility hunger strike. In this conversation, Corey Cardinal explains what led to the hunger strike and how outside support has been helpful to those inside. I'm here with Corey Charles Cardinal, who is one of the, the lead organizers of the hunger strike that's ongoing at the Saskatoon Correctional Center. And Corey, I'm wondering if uh, there's anything that you would like to communicate to people out there who are listening and who are supporting your efforts inside. There's no words right now that I, you know, that I could possibly muster to express my gratitude, you know, for, for the people out there that are, that are supporting uh, me and supporting all the inmates here. I mean, it just, like, uh, you know, it brought tears to my eye and stuff. <laughs> and myself, by myself here, you know, it's just big paper, it's paper, so, you know, access to the paper is, like, basically the only little beacon of, of light, plus, you know, that uh, of the outside world right now is segregation, because segregation is a place you go to get ignored, you know, and, uh, segregation is a place you go to get muffled. And so, like, just, you know, reading everything in the paper, you know, just it, it gives me strength. So, you know, it gives me strength to keep going, knowing that everybody out there is uniting within a common, a common purpose, you know, and just to promote humanity. So that, that's, yeah. that, that's uh, a big part of, of what I'm trying to do is promote the humanity of the people inside and just, you know, just to show people out there that we're not animals, that we're, you know, that we're not just criminals, but that we are human beings. And that's a big part of this protest, is to promote humanity. And you've been able to bring together a lot of people uh, in, the, in the jail and across jails in Saskatchewan to, to stand together and that's been really impressive to see that kind of solidarity in action inside and also between people on the inside and the outside. Can you tell us a little bit about why you started the strike in the first place? Some of the, the conditions that happened originally uh, that led to the COVID outbreak at Saskatoon Correctional and some of the, the government inaction around that? So every day we were watching the COVID numbers on our little TVs. There was just a talk, there was talk about how COVID would affect us and what, what they would do. And so we weren't seeing anything from the correctional. We were asking the common working staff and we were met with dominant professionalism to suppress our, our complaints and our questions. And so as the COVID progressed, so did our, our unification and our, you know, our discussions. And so we started organizing and uh, having these discussions on how we could possibly get more information from, from the ministry and stuff. So, and then the numbers started to, to, to get uh, more in the community. Uh, you know, I started to look around me and I, I noticed, you know, like all my peers and stuff. And, you know, these, these people are vulnerable, you know, like it started, you know, like Saskatoon has the highest rates of HIV infection and there was people that were overcrowded and sitting on, you know, laying on, on the ground, like uh, on the, you know, on bunk beds and, uh, makeshift beds around me and these are my peers my you know like these were people I grew up with people that I survived on the streets with people that I was hungry and stuff and you know that I had to you know take desperate measures with people that I loved in reality there was an act 
of love, you know, out of my friends. So, you know, like I just had to take the appropriate actions to try to form some kind of defense for vulnerable people. So, you know, I tried to create a dialogue between the inmates and the Ministry of Corrections and things were breaking down, which led to the hunger strike, right? The COVID outbreak on the unit that I was on, at COVID, they left COVID-positive inmates on the unit without, like, even any uh, thought as to how it's going to affect everybody and it created an atmosphere of fear and tension on the unit. And then uh, the cleaner got sick and he was an older man, like, uh, marginalized on the streets and stuff that I knew. So I picked up his chore and I went to the office, right? I was going to clean the bathrooms. They just, they were refusing to give us any kind of cleaning stuff uh, to form some kind of defense against COVID. And there was already a high level of tension, and so those communications broke down. And I was trying to take appropriate action to mediate that situation, but they were just—I was met with dominant professionalism, and I had—I honestly like gave it everything I had to try to mediate that situation to prevent a hunger strike. And there was already talks of a hunger strike on the unit. Inmates were already scared, and they didn't know what to do. I was trying to prevent the, the hunger strike. I wasn't trying to advocate for it. So those communications broke down with the staff, and so I, I went and talked to my peers, and they just there was just too much. They wanted to hunger strike, so we declared it, and that's subsequently what brought me moved to the hole itself. And part of part of the issue too, right, has been the lack of action uh, by the government. Uh, if if I understand correctly, you wrote a few letters to the Minister of Corrections, Christine Tell, in. In November was it, and uh, she were you were warning her of the of the conditions inside and asking for uh, clarity and asking for what they were planning to do to protect people inside, and and basically you got no response. Is that right? I also felt like because I was in a position with uh, you know I'm not the average, right? You know, like if you have a set of skills, I think you have a duty towards uh, those around you, and there's a lot of stuff. You know, like, uh, didn't have a certain skill set, so there's a lot of inmates that were looking to me, so that's, uh, you know, I, 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 I thought that's just a step up, you know, like, to, you know, I had a duty towards protecting my people, mm. to protect those around around me, so I, I, I tried to create a dialogue to, uh, within the ministry, and uh, I think everybody's seen this coming, like, you know, like, there was also examples on each side of the province of Saskatchewan um, with, you know, Headingley Correctional uh, with the large outbreak there, Alberta, Calgary Correctional. These were examples that she should have seen coming. And there was multiple letters uh, from the uh, Coalition of Advocates that um, were advocating, in, you know, reducing those, the population of inmates, right, and the reduction of harm, right? Uh, so that was there was multiple letters, not only from myself, but from the, the coalition of advocates. Um, and this was they already did this back in April second. A letter was sent out um, by this coalition of advocates, including uh, Classic and Pro Bono, uh, Elizabeth Fry. And so that's why the inmates got out to reduce the harm from COVID, right? So she already did that, and she let. The, the population rise again throughout the summer and it got to overcrowding again. I just, I had to remind her if she didn't already know. Now this is a lady with a psychiatric 
background, if I'm not mistaken. So she already knows, she's had medical training to know that Saskatoon, Saskatchewan has the highest rate of HIV infection. And coupled with that is um, Hep C. So if you have Hep C and you have HIV and you get sick with COVID, you have three viruses in your body. And just knowing those variables and those factors and coupled with overcrowding uh, that has been consistent and progressive in Saskatchewan prisons for a long time and knowing that Aboriginal people fill her directionals, you know, and just not not taking their, their actions and the steps to reduce the harm to the vulnerable Aboriginal people, you know, I think uh, is a serious, serious issue. And I'm firmly believing that throughout history, this example by uh, of the relationship between Saskatchewan uh, government, not, not only that, the federal government and Aboriginal peoples and failing to protect them, it's just an example and it's of, of their relationship and uh, should be construed and should be recognized, you know, as, a, as an act of genocide, as an act of, of, of the steps towards genocide, right? So what would have happened if, you know, this, this was a more serious issue and she was refusing to protect Aboriginal, I don't mean to, to, to sow divisions, but it affects everyone, white, brown, or black. But knowing that Saskatoon Correctional is 85% Aboriginal and failing to protect them, like refusing to even do that, is just that I think it should be construed and uh, recognizes Yes, I think that's that's a really powerful observation, and it connects connects with this long history of colonialism and uh, colonial powers using disease and also lack of access to appropriate healthcare, etc. as a as a tool of of genocide, as you're saying, right? So. Yeah, so I think it's really important for, for people to understand that and to, to put what's happening now in that long context of 154 years here of, uh, of so-called Canada. So, yeah, so you are, just a final, final question, Corey, you are calling for the resignation then of Minister Christine Tell because of this government negligence and inaction, uh, as well as calling for an apology. Is that is that right? Absolutely. I mean, this is long overdue. I mean, this is, like, she's been consistently, progressively keeping these correctionals overfilled, you know, to, so she could, uh, you know, quite possibly uh, reach her quota to apply for federal funding and attract more federal funding. Uh, she had a chance way back, like, when, uh, you know, uh, when COVID uh, first hit, the, the, the jails were, you know, a little bit uh, less. She had a chance that the populations were decreased. She had a chance to turn things around, but she, she hasn't get overcrowded yet, you know, to attract that 200 million for the new Greenland expansion. Um, this is a uh, long, way long overdue. Like, like she's been keeping these correctionals full of vulnerable Aboriginal and vulnerable street people for years 
and it's led to violence. It's led to a cesspool of gang recruitment, which led to over 20 Aboriginal gangs, the rise of gangs in Saskatoon. So she created this, 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 uh, this making, and now you're just starting to see, you know, the fruitation of it. You're seeing, like, you know, it's, uh, you're seeing the, the, the gangs that are taking over, you're seeing violence, you're seeing stress between the common inmate and the staff. I mean, you just, it's, it's just getting out of control, and I really think that it's time uh, that, you know, that uh, she should apologize to the people in the scenarios she created, not only for us, but to her staff. Her staff, like, this affects them, they're, they're, you know, they're taking out on us, because they have to work overtime, right? Mm. And like I, you know, I, I, I'm not any more biased towards the staff than anybody else. Like, you know, I'm not biased against because I understand that they're humans too. And I understand they have to, you know, they have to go home to families. And they're affected too. I think she really needs to apologize to the common working staff because they, they were, they were left with no information either. They, you know, they didn't know what to, to, to ask. They were asking us if we knew anything, right? Because they didn't know, they, they're trapped in, you know, sectarianism also, right? So, I mean, I, I really think she needs to apologize to these common working staff that got sick and had to work in a potentially violent situation. I really think that there needs to be some shed, uh, shed some light into that kind of situation because we're supporting the, there's allegations of systemic racism over there coming from that unit, unit two, I believe, and the, the girls are on hunger strike over there, and I just, I applaud their bravery. Like, I almost cried when I heard that 15 of them stood up, you know, to hunger strike, and then even more of them, and it just, if you look at the missing and murdered, Aboriginal, you know, the missing and murdered recommendations on the 819, you know, it'll line out uh, recommendations on how to look into, like, they recommend to look into allegations of racism at Pine Grove. It's there. All these reports on systemic racism are there, and these girls are confirming it. And I'm worried about them. And I'm not going to eat until you know, until that somebody makes an attempt to go look, look into these allegations. They're calling that unit the law, uh, the orphanage, and they're calling that unit uh, the orphanage for the lost girls. And also, I really think that, you know, who's, who's ever listening out there, please, you know, look into those allegations. Yeah, thanks. And just for people... You have one minute remaining for this call. Just for people listening quickly, Pine Grove Correctional is a women's facility in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, just for anyone who's not familiar with that. Well, thank you, Corey. I think we're we're running out of time, but thanks so much for speaking with us and, and sharing your really powerful words. Just want to let you let you know that there are so many people on the outside who are standing with you in solidarity. So thanks thanks for your time today. Thank you. Special thanks to Perilous Chronicle for that audio. You can find more about their work at perilouschronicle.com. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. 
You can call in on behalf of a loved one, or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at Patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.